I'm Jacob Schatz, and the magic's in the music, but the music is in me. This is Talking Atlas. Hello and welcome back to Talking Atlas. In a few of my previous solo episodes, I've talked to you all about how magic intersects with another one of my favorite things, specifically tabletop gaming. Today I'm going a little bit further afield to another one of my favorite things, and that is music. I think a lot about how music and magic intersect. So today I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent as to why I think music and magic are so cool, because there's actually a lot of overlap between why I like music and how I use music to think and interact with people, and why I like magic. Before we go any further, I will pose a question to you all, and that is, if your favorite deck or card had a theme song, what would that deck or card's theme song be? I'm saving my answer for this question for later in the episode because it's a doozy. But I want to hear what you all have in mind. Find me on Twitter as at Frogger, that's spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. You can either send me the card name or the deck idea and the theme song that you've chosen, or you can send me just the card name or the deck idea, and I will tell you what I think a good theme song might be. Either way... Find me on Twitter, P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R, that's Frogger. Now then, back to the episode proper. At the beginning of my tabletop games and magic episode, I talked a bit about the idea that magic and D&D, for example, act as languages. That is, you can sit down at a table of people that you don't know, but you know that they understand magic. And you already have a baseline which you can use to communicate with them, to share ideas. You both have a set of experiences that you can draw from, and that's going to bring you closer with those people, even if you know nothing else about them. Music can act as that binding agent as well. Music is sometimes referred to as the universal language because it transcends barriers that we typically expect from the spoken word. You don't need to understand Spanish in order to understand a Latin beat and the emotion that is carried along with it. Music is, in and of itself, an emotional language. A song can sound sad or sound happy without having any words that communicate the explicit idea of sadness or happiness. When you hear a song and ascribe an emotional value to it, that's built on... A little bit of genetics, but a lot of cultural context. You bring that cultural context with you, and music has access to that, and can immediately conjure an emotional image in your mind. This mirrors some of the talk that Magic's designers give about making resonant fantasy images. If I show you a picture of a goblin in a typically goblin-y pose or doing something that looks like something that a goblin would do, you're going to ascribe a whole slew of existing values on it because you understand what the concept of a goblin is. This is true of elves and dragons, and once you get further into Magic's world building, concepts like Demir or Golgari, 
you have an idea of what those guilds are capable of or the general ethos of those guilds. And so when you talk to someone about that part of color philosophy, you can skip through a lot of explanation just because you both understand the core tenets of the color pie. In fact, you can form bonds with people more quickly because you have some of the same opinions on certain cards or certain aspects of color philosophy. There's a lot of overlap between the idea of two people liking the same band and two people liking the same deck or card. If I'm talking with someone and we both figure out that we both love Led Zeppelin, that's going to bring us closer together. That gives us a shared experience, even though we haven't spent all that much time together through the medium of the music. Similarly, every time I find someone who loves the Hollow One deck that's trending in modern right now, I understand the kinds of decks that they associate themselves with. I understand the way that they like to play Magic, or would like to play Magic if modern wasn't as expensive as it is. On the flip side, there is a unique joy that one can find when sharing something new in the same realm that someone's just never heard of before. Anytime I'm talking about Hollow One and someone goes, I've never heard of that deck before, I get to explain to them how one brewer figured out that Goblin Lore is actually a good card when you combine it with an artifact that gets its casting cost reduced for every card you've discarded. And then that turned into a deck overnight that was suddenly seeing play at a Pro Tour level. In the exact same way, whenever someone talks about a musical artist that I have never heard of, I get really excited because it means that they have something that they care about that they can now share with me, and I can learn to care about it too. I learn more about them, I learn more about what they care about, and I have a new thing that I get to explore. That's another way that music and magic are fascinating and exciting. This concept of exploration. I don't think that I am ever going to run out of magic cards or music to dive into and learn more about. There are 18,545 distinct magic cards right now, and they are only printing more. I don't know all of them, not even close, and basically every day that I am reading about magic or looking through cards or talking to people about the decks that they are playing, I learn about a new card that I've never thought of before. And every card that is printed in Magic changes the rules of Magic. We've talked about this a little bit before in the past, but that's really what the cards do. They change something fundamentally about what another card or the rules in general mean. And so the number of interactions between all of those 18,000 cards is only going to grow exponentially as they print more. We're never going to run out of unique interactions to find. There are, at time of recording, at least 26 million songs on iTunes, and probably more depending on who you ask. I could listen to Spotify continuously from this point until 90 years in the future, never repeating songs, and I wouldn't even put a dent in the amount of music that I would still have to listen to. That's exciting. There's always new stuff to find. There's always new stuff to learn. And people are always innovating 
and taking new strides with how music is being made, produced, and expressed, and performed. I'm never going to run out of music to listen to, and I'm never going to run out of magic cards to learn about. And besides the works themselves, I'm always going to learn new ideas in the creation of both of these things. The amount of design that goes into any given magic set is humongous. And for the most part, especially in recent years, design philosophies have been well-documented. There's an article series on the Magic homepage called The M-Files, and it goes into card-by-card notes that are placed on the designs as they get iterated on through Magic's design development and play design phases. These comments are presented and then explained by a member of the play design team, usually Melissa DeTora. I can learn not only how cards were changed as they were getting them ready for prime time, but also why those changes were made, and whether or not a change was attempted and then reverted, because the way that they had originally tried it was better than the other ways that they tried later. The amount of information that goes into designing magic cards, and the fact that this information is presented publicly, gives me more to think about when I'm evaluating a magic card that I see for the first time. Why was it made this way? What was the experience that was trying to be made because of the little ways that this card was tweaked in development? Similarly, more and more artists nowadays are talking about why they make music in a particular way. There's a website called Genius, and it was originally Rap Genius, but I think that's now a subset of everything that it does. And it's a site about the lyrics of music, and you can go and find a song that's on Genius, and it'll have a breakdown line by line, and sometimes word by word, as to what each part of this song is referring to. And in some cases, why it's being talked about in this particular way. The backstory behind all of the choices for the lyrics for an entire song. Again, if I went on Genius and spent all day every day for the next few years looking up all of the songs that I know and trying to get context for them, well, I'd be fired because I wouldn't be doing my job. But also, I wouldn't even come close to finishing all of the songs that I know. But what I would have is a greater appreciation for why certain lyrical choices were made, or what exactly this symbolic piece of imagery in this song was referring to. Now, I care about this particular aspect of both music and magic because, well, I'm a giant nerd. I like thinking about how things are constructed and why certain choices are being made this way and all sorts of little tiny pieces of minutiae that go into creating the things that I like. But I want to stress that that's not the only way that you can enjoy either of these things. Lord knows that most people don't worry about the kinds of things that I worry about. But that's another cool thing about music and magic. You don't have to in order to enjoy the hobby. There are subcultures in each hobby that do care a lot about whether or not you've thought about certain aspects of music. And I can understand that to a certain degree. Especially if you're talking about musical composition, you want a certain amount of competency and professionalism when you're entering into a discussion. In the jazz community, Specifically, there's this concept of someone having the chops in order to play with anybody else. 
And yeah, if you show up to a musical performance and you don't know how to play right, that's on you. That's not on the other people. Similarly, if you show up to the Pro Tour or like a team event and you are simply not as good as the other members of your team, that's going to show. And yeah, it's not a whole lot of fun. But also, there's way more places to play Magic than on the Pro Tour. And there's way more ways to enjoy music than playing jazz at a near-professional level. I'm approaching both of these topics as a relatively casual hobbyist. Sometimes Bryce and I will bandy about the word hardcore casual because we don't take it as seriously as a true professional would, but also we have a lot more investment and time dedicated to learning the minutiae than a typical casual player might. All of this is a roundabout way of saying there are a lot of ways to enjoy both music and magic, and that's important. In order to start playing magic, you don't have to know a whole lot. You do probably have to have someone to help you learn the rules, but even that barrier is getting broken down by things like Magic Arena, which has an extraordinarily user-friendly interface to learn the basics of magic, up to and including the stack, which is a relatively complex concept even for people who have been playing games for a long time. Similarly, you don't need to know anything about chord progressions or the different modes that you can play or anything about how to read sheet music in order to know what kind of music you enjoy listening to, to learn what kind of music provides an emotional response from you. Comfort and experimentation are both completely valid ways of enjoying music and magic. The next way that I want to talk about music and magic is not necessarily in a theoretical sense, which is kind of weird. I've been very touchy-feely about both of these things so far, but I want to talk about music and magic both as cultural artifacts. I've been thinking a lot about the concept of cultural artifacts, and weirdly enough, the thing that got me thinking about them was the... Uh, Relatively recent stunt performed by notorious artist-slash-prankster Banksy. For those of you who are not aware, Banksy is a pop artist who is a little bit enigmatic, yet somehow has ascended to the ranks of the artist elite in, I believe it's the British art scene. You can tell that I don't have nearly as much insight into visual art as I do into, well, Magic, because I'm not entirely sure where Banksy operates. Banksy got his, their, start in graffiti, or street art, which is what you call graffiti when it's done by a white person. Because art is typically given more legitimacy in a professional context if it's made by white people than by a person of color. Oh, that is a subject for another podcast. At any rate, Banksy has made a series of art pieces critiquing modern culture that... I don't necessarily find as subversive as I think Banksy would like me to find them. A lot of the innate message of Banksy's art can be boiled down to modern capitalism, bad. Modern society, bad. Modern technology, bad. And that doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, I'm no big fan of capitalism, but technology has made several parts of my life better like, unmistakably better than if I did not have that technology. 
But a fascinating thing about Banksy's pieces, and specifically one that happened recently, is their status as cultural artifacts, and the events surrounding them becoming the art piece, in a sense. The latest stunt occurred when, after selling for several million dollars at auction, a work of Banksy's art, that was a framed painting of some sort, shredded itself. Immediately after selling, the painting that was in the frame shredded down through the frame into tiny little pieces of paper. And everyone was shocked and agog. My god, this is a piece that sold for millions of dollars and now it's destroyed. And my friends and I had a discussion about that and whether or not that was art. And I think the answer is yeah, the event... The painting itself, that's all art. Whether or not you think it's good art is another thing entirely. But we got to talking about the artifact itself, that painting, and how the initial perception is, oh my god, it's destroyed, it's worthless. But obviously that's not the case, because that's now the remnants of an original Banksy painting that can be collected and shown as, hey, remember that time that Banksy's painting just shredded itself in front of a bunch of rich people? That's incredible. In fact, the painting and its remains are probably twice as expensive now because they are representative of that piece of art, that event that's been encapsulated. And that's wild, no matter how you look at it. My friends and I talked about how you could... Make that yourself. You could put a painting together, put it in a frame, shred that painting. You could do all of the physical steps required to recreate the thing that they ended up with. But it would not have the same monetary value because of the way that the painting that Banksy made, who made it, where it was shown how it was framed, figuratively and literally, and the events surrounding its creation and destruction, all of those captured something about that culture. And it was just kind of stored inside of the shreds of the painting. So while we could definitely recreate a shredded painting, we couldn't recreate those moments surrounding it and store them inside of a painting. Now, that's all well and good. Getting back to music and magic, one of the examples that I thought of as I was discussing this with my friends and saying, well, I have a hard time thinking about the value of visual art because visual art is so widespread. You can get classic paintings on your screen whenever you want. And then I thought about it and I said, well... Yeah, that's true, and maybe I don't have too much love or emotional resonance associated with, I don't know, the Mona Lisa, and definitely not with a Banksy painting. But if I held in my hands the master tracks, the master copies of stuff like, I don't know, Abbey Road, I would be losing my mind. If I held a guitar that Jimi Hendrix played, I think I'd probably break down crying because of the cultural value that's been instilled into that artifact. I could go and hold a guitar, and it probably wouldn't be the same make or model as one of the guitars that Jimi Hendrix had, but I could 
recreate, I don't know, the pose. I could play the same notes that he played on a guitar if I really practiced for a while, but I would not be able to contain the lightning in a bottle that was the idea of Jimi Hendrix that's now been imprinted onto this cultural artifact of a guitar. Magic cards have a property to them that's not quite the same as musical artifacts. If I had the deck that won the last Pro Tour in my hands, that probably wouldn't feel too different. But if I were holding an Alpha Black Lotus, I'd probably be in shock. Now, again, I can print out cardstock with a picture of a Black Lotus on it, with a new art that someone's done for a digital version of Black Lotus. I could print that out, I could sleeve it up, assuming my friends would let me, and I could play that in my cube, or in some extraordinarily casual games of Commander. But that's not the same as holding a Black Lotus. A real Black Lotus. The way that the game has existed for 25 years has imbued the original cards with an amount of cultural relevancy. And this is the part that I probably struggle with the most for both of these hobbies. I like to think of them both as ethereal to a certain extent. And that's a little bit of a privileged position on my part, as someone who can afford to have a Spotify subscription and buy probably all the music that I wanted if I scrimped and saved at least. I don't think of music as having a, a physical weight in the real world, but it does. And the process of making music is a physical act, whether or not I'm getting a digital or conceptual version of it at the end. Similarly, any time that I think about magic as costing too much, which I think I still agree with that sentiment, especially when you're talking about Vintage or Legacy. I come down to this very lighthearted notion of it's just cardboard. It is cardboard that someone has printed ink on, and because of the time and the relevancy of when they printed the ink on this card, that determines what a real magic card is or not. When magic as a game could technically purely technically speaking, exist without Wizards of the Coast. It might not have been invented without Richard Garfield or Wizards of the Coast, but if Wizards of the Coast stopped printing magic cards tomorrow, the game of magic, purely in the theoretical realm, as a set of rules and descriptions for playing pieces to act out those rules, that could still exist. But there is a weight associated with the production of the hobby that gives certain aspects of it legitimacy. And legitimacy is a real issue that comes up, but exclusively within the subculture. Musical legitimacy is more widely talked about, and the idea of what real music is or not mostly comes down to a matter of opinion, but it's also kind of only brought up by people who are at least a little bit invested in the idea of music separated from everything else. If you don't really care about music, you're not going to argue one way or another if a certain piece of music is real or valid or good. You're just going to say, that sounds good, I like that, and that's fine. People who aren't 
invested in magic to some degree really don't care about whether or not you're playing with real cards. It doesn't matter to them. And any time that I try to explain to someone who doesn't play magic or doesn't think about magic the price of an Alpha Lotus, their eyes bug out of their heads. Why would anyone pay tens of thousands of dollars for that piece of cardboard? And it comes down to this legitimacy of a cultural artifact. The only reason that anybody's paying tens of thousands of dollars for this is because of the weight that is it is given by the systems around it. You can only play this card in a tournament if you have a real card. And so it's up to a system that is within the hobby subculture to define whether or not something is legitimate. For magic, it's way harder and faster because it is, has this card been printed by Wizards of the Coast? But music has the same sort of arguments and theory discussions that go around it as to whether or not something is music, or more often whether or not it is good music. And as much as I have a hard time wrestling with this concept, it's also something that I love about both of these. Because it means that there's something deeper about the thing that's being made that people care about enough to have these kinds of conversations. There is a weightiness to both of these hobbies, purely based on what's being made and how it's being made. Whew, that was really heavy and kind of long-winded, so let's move on to something a little bit more lighthearted, and probably my most favorite part of this entire episode. During my previous solo episodes, I've talked about blending tabletop games with Magic the Gathering, and how my experiences with blending Magic's lessons and the pieces and tools that it gives me with tabletop games has made my games stronger. Now let's get into blending music with Magic the Gathering. Now, admittedly, music and magic are a little bit further afield. For starters, they're not both games. But there is an overlap to them, as I've just described. The color pie for Magic the Gathering and the tastes that you have personally for different kinds of music are both ways that you can describe yourself. And both magic and music provide you a set of tools that you can use to discuss the other. You can use music to characterize the way that you play magic or your interpretation of certain cards. And you can use the color pie and the philosophy breakdown that it gives you to discuss why you like a particular song, or an artist, or a genre. Now, I said that I'd be moving away from the heavy stuff, so the first thing that I'm going to start with is, you can just make jokes. You can use music as a joke to interpret, or make fun of, or have fun with magic cards. For example, when Deafening Clarion came out for Guilds of Ravnica, it's got a minotaur playing a big old war horn, and it's sounding the alarm that's supposed to rouse the Boros troops to fight or whatever. I posted that on my Twitter with the caption, Careless Whisper playing in the distance, which is a very sultry saxophone song. It was a stupid little joke. I had a lot of fun with it, but it also completely recontextualized that art and the intent of the story that was being told by that card. That's weirdly powerful. That's a thing that maybe only music can do 
in a sense. Conversely, I like taking songs that I have a particular affinity for and trying to figure out what that song's color identity might be. For example, one of my favorite songs in the world is Gold Dust Woman by Fleetwood Mac. And after listening to that song a bunch of times, I've characterized the narrative that it's trying to tell as Mardu, that is white, red, and black. The white portion of his color identity is drawn from the iconography that it uses. It has a lot of references to royalty and kingdom. And while that might seem a little bit shallow, the colors do have some resonant imagery that's associated with them. There's nothing mentally or philosophically blue about merfolk unless you kind of stretch. Or maybe merfolk can get there, but ice powers aren't necessarily blue because they're about the progress of changing phases of matter so much as blue magic is themed around water and ice. So similarly, a white philosophy makes use of structures like royalty and kingdoms and lineage. However, that's not all that the song is about. It's also about emotional turmoil. The chorus of this song is explicitly about emotional distress. Well, did she make you cry, make you break down, shatter your illusions of love? That's a very red sentiment. But the last portion comes in with this black color philosophy. And black's identity is not necessarily about evil, but it is about overcoming obstacles by any means necessary. And the entire song has that white-black feel, and it dips into red for the chorus. The black philosophy comes in slowly, gently woven into the verses. Heartless challenge, pick your path and I'll pray. See your sunrise loves to go down. Follow those who pale in your shadow. That is all about this idea of establishing dominance and superiority and taking back what's yours. So as you see, I took color philosophy and applied it to a song that I'd heard a hundred times, and it gave me a better appreciation for the way that it was using its words to establish some particular themes. There's a particular feeling that goes along with this song, and it only works as well as it does because it takes those three discrete ideas and pulls them together and makes them work off of each other, just like how the three-color factions in Magic are as resonant as they are because of the balancing of the different parts of their philosophy. So lastly, I want to talk about a particular way that I have worked Magic and Music together. I asked you at the beginning of this episode to give me a theme song for your favorite card or deck. I'd like to give you a little deck tech that is based on a song. I came up with this a while ago, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. I'll start with the core conceit of the deck. This deck is built entirely around one elaborate combo of cards. There is a single line of play that I want to follow from start to finish, and if I can do that, then this deck will have served its entire purpose. To start, I want to cast Dig Through Time, using its delve ability to reduce its cost by delving away a copy of Last Ditch Effort. Bear with me. After that, I want to cast either Burn as half of Turn and Burn or Burn from Within, targeting Lizolda the Blood Witch or Kumbaj Witches. Then, and most critically, I want to take Olivia Voldaren, 
use her to crew a daredevil dragster, making it a creature. Then I want to activate her ability to deal one damage to that daredevil dragster, making it a vampire in addition to its other types, and put a plus one plus one counter on Olivia Voldaren. Then I want to attack with the daredevil dragster. If I manage to achieve all this, then I will have successfully digged through the ditches, then burned through the witches, then slammed in the back of my Dragula. Which is the chorus to the Rob Zombie song, Dragula, which is about a car that's also a vampire. I think. I hastily assembled this combination of cards to represent a song that I liked. And since then, I have constructed 56 total cards to create the core of a Cedrus the Traitor King EDH deck. Cedrus the Traitor King is three blue, black, red for a 5-5 legendary creature zombie warrior. Each creature in your graveyard has unearth two and a black, which is to say two and a black, return the card to play. That creature gains haste, remove it from the game at end of turn or if it would leave play, and you may unearth only as a sorcery. After I made that combo and picked out my commander, I started to build the other cards in the deck based on the rest of the song. I'll try to run through the rest of the cards as quickly as I can. All right, so, line one. Dead I am the one exterminating sun. Dead I, two words, dead and then single letter I, like me, are used extensively throughout the song. They start basically every line in the verses or every other line. Funnily enough, a card that combos really well with Cedrus is Deadeye Navigator. All right, Deadeye Navigator combos really well with itself, but it has special utility in a Cedrus deck. This is a creature that has Soul Bond, which says you may pair this creature with another unpaired creature when either enters the battlefield. They remain paired for as long as you control both of them. And it gives itself and the paired creature one in a blue, exile this creature, then return it to the battlefield under your control. This combos with Cedrus's ability to unearth creatures. Unearth says, if this would leave the battlefield, exile it instead of putting it anywhere else. Deadeye exiles things. If it was going to go to exile anyway, then Cedrus doesn't really care. The unearth ability doesn't really care. Then when Deadeye says, put it back on the battlefield, Cedrus says, you already exiled it. That's fine. So you can keep the card around instead of exiling it forever. Deadeye Navigator is a great card. More importantly, there is another card with Deadeye in its name, and that's Deadeye Quartermaster. Deadeye Quartermaster is three and a blue for a 2-2 creature. When it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an equipment or vehicle card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. This is way more useful than Deadeye Navigator because it can surge up our Daredevil Dragster. Alright, that's Deadeye. And the one Exterminating Sun. For one, I've picked out Shieldred Whispering One, which can get our cards back from the graveyard in a more reliable way, but she costs a lot of mana. She's also just a pretty good card for graveyard-centric decks. There's no card that is Exterminate, so instead I just put it in Regular Terminate, which can destroy target creature, it can't be regenerated. It's a good single-shot removal spell. For Sun, I've picked out two cards. Admittedly, they're not the right kind of Sun, but they work well enough. Black Sun Zenith is X black black, put X minus one minus one counters on each creature, shuffle Black Sun Zenith into its owner's library. I've also included Burning Sun's Avatar, which is three red 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 for a 6-6 six, six dinosaur avatar. 
When it enters the battlefield, it deals 3 damage to target opponent and 3 damage to up to 1 target creature. Black Sun Zenith is a solid board wipe in a red-black-blue deck, and Burning Sun's Avatar is a pretty solid reanimator target for our unearth ability. Next line is Slipping Through the Trees, Strangling the Breeze. For Slip, I've picked Tragic Slip because it's better than Slip Through Space, and those are pretty much the only cards that refer to slipping. For Tree, I've picked Tree of Perdition, which isn't amazing, but if I reanimate it, it can use its tap ability to swap its toughness with target opponent's life total. So it's an okay, interesting reanimator target. Strangling the Breeze, very simple. Stranglehold, three and a red for an enchantment, your opponents can't search libraries. If an opponent would begin an extra turn, that player skips that turn instead. Turning off library search means that your very bad deck that we're on our way to crafting might be able to compete with a much better deck. And you're going to need all the help that you can get, because for Breeze, we picked Breeze Keeper, which is three and a blue for a 4-4 with flying and phasing. I'm not going to explain phasing. I don't have the time. Just know that this isn't a very good card at all. Dead I Am the Sky, Watching Angels Cry. For Sky, I've picked Skyline Despot, which is a 7-mana 5-5 dragon that when it enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And at the beginning of your upkeep, if you're the monarch, put a 5-5 red dragon creature token with flying onto the battlefield. At absolute worst case... This gets stuck in your hand and you can't cast it. Okay, at second worst case, you reanimate this using your Unearth ability and become the Monarch, drawing some cards for at least one turn. Watching Angels Cry, I've picked Crypt Angel and Skeletal Scrying because I'm a bad person. Crypt Angel also has Cry in its name. While they slowly turn, conquering the worm. For slowly turn, I've got Turn from Turn and Burn, as well as Slow Motion, which is... Not a very good removal spell. I've also included Dread Return for turn, because that's a much better card in our graveyard-centric deck. For Conquering, I've included Conqueror's Flail, which has a little bit more of a prison aspect, because it says as long as it's attached to a creature, your opponents can't cast spells during your turn. You need to slow down your opponent's decks as much as you can in order to even barely compete with this deck. Conquering Manticore is a little bit funnier. When it enters the battlefield, you can act of treason something. Grab a creature that your opponent controls for a turn. Most of this deck is built up of very bad cards and cards that would probably work okay as an unearthed target. Ah, the last part of this verse is Conquering the Worm. And for Worm, I've chosen Wormfang Manta. Five blue blue for a 6-1 creature Nightmare Beast with flying... When it comes into play, you skip your next turn. When it leaves play, you take an extra turn after this one. Next, we get to the chorus, and I've already gone through the chorus joke, so I won't repeat it. I've also included Burnished Heart for Burn, because technically it might count, and also Burnished Heart is just a very good card that you'll need in order to get all three of your colors working. The next verse, Dead I Am the Pool Spreading from the Fool. For Pool, I've picked Knowledge Pool, because that's a chaotic card, and you're going to need all the whimsy that you can generate with this deck in order to let other people continue playing with you. Spreading was a little tough to work with, but I went with Spreading Rot. Spreading Rot is four and a black, destroy target land, its controller loses two life. This is the least worst card that I could come up with for Spreading. For Fool, I picked Fool's Demise. Four and a blue, when Enchanted Creature dies, return that card to the battlefield under your control. When Fool's Demise is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, return Fool's Demise to its owner's hand. This card is kind of a non-bow with your deck, because your unearthed creatures are not dying, they are being sent to exile. 
But again, least worst card for fool. Next line, weak and what you need, nowhere as you bleed. For weak, I've picked Culling the Weak, which is a very bad card, but almost works with your deck. Culling the Weak is an instant, one black mana, as an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature, add black, 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 black. So you can turn a single black mana into an unearth ability if you really need to. For need, I've included Hour of Need. Exile any number of target creatures for each creature exiled this way. Its controller puts a 4-4 blue Sphinx creature token with flying onto the battlefield. This is an instant for two and a blue, and it has Strive, so you can pay one and a blue more for each target beyond the first in order to target a bunch of your creatures. All of your creatures that you've unearthed are going to be exiled anyway, so you might as well turn them into 4-4 Sphinxes. Nowhere gets Eye of Nowhere, blue blue, for a sorcery return target permanent to its owner's hand. I think that might be the only card that references Nowhere. At the very least, it's the only card in this color identity that also wasn't horrific. Nowhere as you bleed finishes up the line. So I've included Sign in Blood, which is just an okay card draw spell, and Blood Tracker. Blood Tracker is interesting because when it leaves the battlefield, you draw a card for each plus one plus one counter on it. Not if it dies, but if it leaves the battlefield. Which means that if you want to put a bunch of mana into it to get some plus one plus one counters on it, even if you've unearthed it, you're going to draw a bunch of cards. Next line, Dead I Am the Rat, Feast Upon the Cat. I've included two rats here. Pack Rat, one in a black, for a star star, where its power and toughness are each equal to the number of rats you control, and you can pay two in a black to discard a card and put a token onto the battlefield that's a copy of Pack Rat. Pack Rat's just a good card, and it also acts as a way to get other creatures into your graveyard to be unearthed. I've also included Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni, which is a ninja that when it deals combat damage to a player, you may put target creature card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. For feasting, I've included Sword of Feast and Famine. Thank goodness we finally got an unequivocally good card. But just in case that was too good for you, I've also included Footbottom Feast, which is two and a black for an instant. Put any number of target creature cards from your graveyard on top of your library and then draw a card. This is a way to save us, hopefully, from graveyard removal. For the cat, I've actually included three different cats, one for each of our colors. Illusory Ambusher is a 4-1 with flash, and whenever it's dealt damage, you draw that many cards. Rakshasa Gravecaller is a 3-6 with exploit, which means when this creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. When Rakshasa Gravecaller exploits a creature, put two 2-2 two, two black zombie creature tokens onto the battlefield. So if you're able to cast this and then unearth it later, you have a decent number of blockers. Finally, we have Blistering Firecat, which is a 7-1 with Trample and Haste, and at the end of turn, you have to sacrifice it. This is fine if we unearth it, because we were going to do that anyway. The last line for this verse is, Tender is the fur, dying as you purr, which is very sad. For Tender, I've cheated again and picked Mercurial Pretender, which is the only clone that works with any of the lyrics in this song. You may have it enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature you control, except it gains two blue-blue, return this creature to its owner's hand. This also doesn't work with our Unearth ability, because it would just send it to exile instead. For dying, I've picked two cards, one which is only kind of cheating, and the other one which is definitely cheating. Undying Evil is a single black mana for an instant target creature gains undying until end of turn. And Life's Finale, which is about dying, which is why it's cheating, is four black black, destroy all creatures, then search target opponent's library for up to three creature cards and put them into his or her graveyard. Then that player shuffles their library. 
Sometimes you just need a board wipe. This is thematically relevant. I'm sorry that I couldn't make it about the lyrics. Last verse. Dead I am the life. Dig into the skin. Life's finale also pulls double duty here, so maybe that's what I was thinking. For skin, we have skin render, which is two black black for a 3-3. When it enters the battlefield, put three minus one minus one counters on target creature. Again, a fine unearth target. Not much to write home about, but it can kill some things. More interesting is Tilanali's skin shifter. Two and a red for a 0-1 human shaman with haste. When it attacks, it becomes a copy of another target non-legendary attacking creature until end of turn. This relies on a lot of things, but there are also some much bigger creatures in this deck. So if you've got one of those on board, then you'll be in good shape if you can unearth this. Knuckle Crack the Bone 21 to win. I've included Knucklebone Witch in this list because I couldn't not. Knucklebone Witch is a single black mana for a 1-1 Goblin Shaman. Whenever a goblin you control is put into a graveyard from play, you may put a plus one plus one counter on Knucklebone Witch. There is exactly one other goblin card in this list, but it's named Knucklebone Witch, and the lyric is Knuckle Crack the Bone. So I had to. 21 to win was a lot harder. I ended up going with Star of Extinction, which is another pretty solid board wipe that has the number 20 on it, because no card has the number 21. Dead I Am the Dog, Hound of Hell You Cry. For the Hound of Hell, I've included two cards. The first is Underworld Cerberus, three black red for a 6-6. It can't be blocked except by three or more creatures. Cards in graveyards can't be the targets of spells or abilities, which our Unearth ability gets around. When Underworld Cerberus dies, exile it, and each player returns all creature cards from their graveyard to their hand. Our intent is to get a bunch of creature cards in our graveyard, but maybe we don't necessarily want them in our hand. It's fine. Our other Hound of Hell is Wolf of Devil's Breach. Three red red for a 5-5. Whenever Wolf of Devil's Breach attacks, you may pay one and a red and discard a card. If you do, Wolf of Devil's Breach deals damage to target creature or planeswalker equal to the discarded card's converted mana cost. For one and a red... We can attack with our 5-5 and put another creature card into our graveyard to unearth later. Devil's Breach also plays into the last lyric of the song, which is, Devil on your back, I can never die. To explicitly have a devil on our back, I've included Charmbreaker Devils, which lets us grab instants or sorceries from our graveyard at random, and whenever we cast an instant or sorcery, it gets bigger. And to place it squarely on our back, I have included Beetleback Chief, the only other goblin, which does create more goblins. It has an Enter the Battlefield ability, which plays well with Unearth, which is not saying a whole lot, but hey, it has more synergy than a lot of the other cards in our deck. Whew! That is the entire breakdown of this deck, but I went through all of it to try to express to you how much I love each of these things. I don't build decks. Longtime viewers of the show will know that I am not the deck builder among our two hosts, but I was compelled by the nature of the music to make a janky shell that covers every single line in this song. Music is powerful, or maybe I'm just a doofus. Both can be true. But it was through music that I was able to access a part of magic that I just had no aptitude or inclination for. And I think that's meaningful at the end of the day. Magic has helped me think about music differently. Music has helped me think about magic differently. So if you take one thing away from this, let it be that the things that you love and the things that you care about don't have to be separate. Try to find out why you like certain things about each of your hobbies and learn how that can help you find new things to love 
in your other hobbies. And with that, we have reached the end of this episode. Thank you all for joining me on this somewhat tangential tirade. And I hope you've learned a little something about me and are thinking a little bit more about you. If you have any songs that you'd like me to hear or any decks that you'd like me to try to put to music, you can find me anywhere you find someone named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And do share with me the things that you like, whether or not you want me to put them to the things that I like. I want to hear about the stuff that makes you happy. For more Talking Atlas, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Discord. The link to the Opal Nebula Discord will be in the description for today's episode at opalnebula.com. Once again, thank you all so much for joining me during this magic moment. And until next time, happy planeswalking, everyone. <laughs>